Good morning. Uh, for those that I don't know, my name is Matt. Brian uh, is not here this morning. They had to travel for a funeral. They had a death in the family this week. Uh, they got back safely, but because he was gone this week, asked if I could fill in this morning. But we're going to continue in our series of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapters 39 to 41, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the life of Joseph. And uh, as we start, I want to pose a question Have you ever wondered why it is that some people persevere in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, and others give up? Why is it that there are some people who are steadfast and seem to maintain a happy, joyful spirit in the midst of trial, and then other people uh, just throw in the towel? I thought about that question this year as I watched the Olympics uh, in February. Uh, I love watching the Olympics because you see these athletes who for years and years and years have persevered and they have trained and often at sports that are pretty obscure. Uh, It's not like a basketball player or a football player that you may see on national television every night. But instead, uh, these are men and women who have trained in relative obscurity for this one event that comes along every four years where they will be on international TV and have a chance for fame and glory and all of those things that go along with it. Uh, As I watched this year, there was one athlete that stood out to me, and he's not a well-known name. Not somebody whose name you'll probably recognize, but uh, he's a downhill skier from the Czech Republic. His name is Andre Bonk. And the reason he stood out to me was not because he won. In fact, uh, he didn't win a medal. Uh, He competed in a few events, one of which was the giant slalom. Closest he came to winning a medal was that he came in fifth in the giant slalom. Uh, After the first run, he was second. He was right up there with the likes of Ted Ligety and another uh, and a number of these world-class skiers. And so because he was second at that point, I happened to be watching and the commentators started talking about Andre Bonk. And they mentioned a few things about him. They said, uh, he is 33 years old. He's been skiing competitively since he was 15. So for 18 years. He's been in four Olympics. He's won zero medals. Uh, The only competitive medal he's won on the international stage was at the World Cup in 2007. He won one bronze medal in one event. And as they talked, one of the commentators said, "It's, it's interesting, he's been through all kinds of surgeries, knee replacements and shoulder surgeries and spinal surgeries because of the tough nature of this sport. And I remember this woman saying, but you never really know what motivates a person to keep going in a sport like this. And of course, the implication is maybe he should stop, right? Maybe he should quit and not keep going. But she said, you never know what keeps a person going. And that stood out to me. I thought, yeah, it really, you you have to ask that question. 18 years in a sport without a single win at the Olympic level. And yet he keeps skiing. Why? Why do people persevere in moments like that? Maybe you know people that you've asked that question about. What is it that keeps that person getting up in the morning? We read about sometimes entrepreneurs who fail and fail and fail before they succeed. What keeps those people going? Or athletes who lose and lose and lose. Who knows? Maybe next time will finally be Andre Bonk's moment and he'll win the gold. Often they do it for the promise of fame or an award or wealth or some kind of earthly significance. And so they push forward. But it's an interesting question also to ask in the spiritual life. What is it that keeps certain people walking with God for an entire lifetime and others give up? In fact, maybe the majority give up, but there are a few who seem to persevere in their walk with God 
throughout their lifetime. When we look at the life of Joseph, we see that kind of a person. We see the kind of person who perseveres through really some very, very dark things in his life. Joseph's story is not, at the beginning especially, a very positive story. For 13 years, Joseph is enslaved, he's in prison, he's separated from his family, he goes through some tough stuff. If you were in a therapy group with Joseph and you started talking about your dysfunctional family, Joseph would win, okay? Because you would raise your hand and say, yeah, you know, my, my dad yelled at me and he'd say, let me tell you what happened to my family. My brothers hated me because I was my dad's favorite. They stripped me of my clothes and planned to kill me. Instead, they just threw me in a well to leave me there to die. But then they saw some Midianites coming and thought, we can make some money by selling the boy. Pulled me out, sold me to the Midianites. They took me to Egypt and they sold me into slavery. That's my family. My family is full of deceit and hatred and immorality. And they hated me. Joseph goes down into Egypt, into slavery. And he begins to work for Potiphar, this royal official, and he does really well. And he begins to gather some momentum in his job and Potiphar puts him over the whole house. And then Potiphar's wife comes along and day after day after day tries to take advantage of Joseph sexually. And he says, no, 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 no. And finally, where we left Joseph's story last week was where uh, she grabs his cloak And pulls it off of him and he runs away. And Joseph finds himself going from a favored slave to prison. That's Joseph's story for the first part of his life. From the time of age 17 to 30. That's Joseph's story. And last week as we looked at the life of Joseph, what we saw is uh, Joseph was a person who refused to give in to temptation. He refused to give in to temptation. Even in the midst of a time where it would have been very easy for him to give in, Joseph remains faithful. This week we're going to look at Joseph refuses to give up. He refuses to give up on his walk with God, even in a time where it would have been easy for him to do that. And the next week we'll look at Joseph refusing to get even. And the question comes into Joseph's life, what is it that keeps Joseph plugging forward? I'm going to give you the answer to that. And then as we walk through Joseph's life, uh, we'll flesh it out a little bit more. What is it that keeps Joseph from giving in? All right, here it is. Joseph doesn't give up on God because he knows God does not give up on him. Joseph doesn't give up on God because he knows God has not given up on him. In other words, as you walk through the book of Genesis and the whole Bible, those men and women who stand firm, you look at Joseph, you look at Daniel, the primary thing that drives them forward is this. They lock their eyes onto the character of God and they say, God is with me. God loves me. God's promises are true even now, even at my darkest moment. Now there are, for all of us, going to come moments that we're tempted to grow bitter, to abandon God, to give up on our walk with him. Uh, Some of you are no doubt in that kind of a moment right now. Your money is gone or almost gone. Your job is terrible. Your family is in chaos. Your kids are struggling. God seems distant. 
and your life feels dark. I can remember moments early on when Shannon and I were married where we struggled with some extreme financial pressure and we hit these moments where we thought, is, does God see what is happening? I hope so, because I'm not sure what we're going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. And as we've walked through our married life and then with kids and for most of you as well, you recognize that there are these moments that come along where you ask, is God here? Is he present? Does he care? And will I continue to trust him? What keeps Joseph going is this realization that God has never left. And God has never turned away from his promises to his people. And we see that fleshed out in the life of Joseph in some very practical ways. We're going to dive into Joseph's story this morning, starting in Genesis chapter 39, verse 13. This is right after Joseph had run away from Potiphar's wife. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now, if you've been reading the story up to this point, you know that her, her tale bears no resemblance to the truth. This is not what happened. And yet Potiphar believes her, verse 19. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. Now pay attention, verses 21 to 23. These are critical verses, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all of the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So Joseph finds himself at a very low point. He's done nothing wrong. Here he is in prison in a foreign land, separated from his family, separated from the teachings of God. He's the, really the only one around who probably believes in the God of Abraham. And yet throughout the course of this story. Moses takes time to say it over and over and over again. God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. Three times in Genesis chapter 39, it says God is with him. Verse 2, verse 21, verse 23. See, Joseph's story is not random, although it probably felt like that at the time. It has all of these twists, all of these turns, and yet it's not Random, because God is writing the story of Joseph's life. And he's right there with him. And there's a critical word even that emerges right here. It says, uh, God showed him kindness, extended kindness, loving kindness, maybe the way some of your translations put it. That's the Hebrew word hesed, hesed, which has this idea of God's covenant love, his loyal love, the love that never leaves. 
That's the kind of love that is described throughout the scriptures when we see this discussion of loving kindness. That God has a love that never departs. A love that keeps its promises. So you have to go all the way back to the life of Abraham to tie this together. What is it that Joseph believes? God made a promise to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham that he would give him land, descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, and through him all the nations would be blessed. And Joseph clings to that promise that God has chosen his family to represent the one true God and that he's with him even in his suffering. The presence of God gives Joseph the ability to keep moving forward. He's right there. God never misses a minute of what happens. God never steps away to microwave his dinner, to take a nap, to do anything that keeps his focus from his people. And because of that, Joseph doesn't give up. Joseph keeps serving God. Joseph remains consistent. It's interesting. You see hints of this all the way through the story of Joseph, that he remembers God's faithfulness. Genesis 41, verses 51 to 22, when Joseph has two sons, he names these sons Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God has made me forget my hardship. In other words, even though I'm separated from my family, even though I've been through 13 years of enslavement and imprisonment, God has made me forget it because he's blessed me with a child and he's he's given me this opportunity to lead in Egypt. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful. God has done this. Because Joseph knows God is with him, Joseph doesn't give up. God never leaves. That was true of Joseph. That's true of you and me. Romans 8 says, if you know Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. That is because he is present in every place at every time. And that idea of infinite knowledge, it really goes beyond us. And I think that's why we have a hard time believing it. We don't have infinite knowledge. There are places I cannot go. There are things I cannot see. And as a parent, to be honest, I'd love to have infinite knowledge, right? I'd love to be able to see everything that happens. Maybe you can relate to that perhaps as a parent. You're in one room of your house and from another room you begin to hear a scuffle. Shouting and accusations and all kinds of things going on. And so you take a deep breath and you pray, God, help us all, right? And you walk into the room and you say, what happened here? And one child says, he hit me. And you say, okay, well, what happened before he hit you? And the answer always comes back, nothing, nothing, right? So you were just sitting here and he just hauled off and he just hit you. Nothing happened before. Well, I bit him, but he hit me a lot harder Then I bid him, right? It hurt a lot worse. Okay, so now parts of the story are starting to emerge that I didn't see. It's hard to get at the whole truth. Why? Because I wasn't there. And justice, consequently, isn't always perfectly served, is it? Because I'm not in the room. But God is. And Joseph knows no matter what is done to him, no matter what hardships he suffers, God is with him in the jail cell. God is with him in the midst of that false accusation. God is with him as his brothers tossed him into a pit. He never leaves. And in the long view of things, 
Joseph knows God's justice will be accomplished and God's promises will be kept. And so Joseph doesn't fear even in those situations because God is present. He sees everything. Get Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Every time I read this passage, I think about Jonah actually trying to escape from the presence of God. He says, I'll go to Tarshish and sail away onto the sea. And God sees him and goes, where where are you going? Over there? Even if I go to the bottom of the ocean, even if I climb to the highest heights, God sees. If you are here this morning, God's presence is with you. He was with you as you drove. He will be with you as you leave. If you know Jesus this morning, his presence is with you through his spirit. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's let that sink in for just a minute. The odds are that you came here this morning and there were difficulties, troubles, trials, problems that weighed you down. They were with you when you walked in. They will still be with you most likely when you drive home. Nothing I'm going to say this morning is going to change the circumstances of your life. Nothing that we sang this morning is going to fix your problems. They will be as present with you when you get home as they were when you woke up this morning. But something else also will not change, and that is that the presence of God is still with you. When you get in your car to drive home, when you walk into your house, when you go to work tomorrow, to the end of the age, he sees every moment. And he has not abandoned his promises. If you know Jesus, you have a promise of eternal life that will never fade. That Jesus died for you and rose again so you can have eternal life. What that means is not even death can separate you from God. No suffering, no sadness, no sin, no sickness. And Joseph knows that as well as he is in a prison. That God is there. God has not forgotten him. Would that change our lives If in those darkest moments we recited to ourselves the reality of God's presence and the faithfulness of his love, it certainly did for Joseph. Because Joseph knew, I haven't escaped him. Just because I'm not with my family doesn't mean God isn't here. And that would have been a critical concept for Israelites to whom Moses is writing, who are wandering in the desert. And are tempted to believe perhaps that God's presence has fled from them. And the message is, no, he's here. And his promise stands. That he will one day usher his people into the land he promised to Abraham. And so God's presence with Joseph 
becomes the basis then from which Joseph can serve God and love others and be consistent and faithful in his character. So because Joseph knows that God is present and with him, then Joseph is able to stay faithful, even in prison. Even in prison. What we see in the life of Joseph is this amazing level of consistency. A lot of people who have read this passage have commented that Joseph's character is consistent. You don't really see anything negative in Joseph's character. It's not that Joseph is perfect. But Joseph is remarkably consistent that he continues to live according to the principles of God. He continues to trust in God's promise no matter what's going on. Whether he's in jail, whether he's ruling with the Pharaoh, Joseph is consistent. Nothing shakes him. And that's particularly significant in light of the comparison to his brothers. Genesis chapter 38, interestingly, right before this section we're reading, details the story of Judah, Joseph's older brother. And it's a very terrible passage. As you read it, what you see in Judah's life is this pattern of deception and sexual immorality and inconsistency. And then right after that, we have the story of Joseph. And a lot of people say, why, why do we hear about Judah in this terrible story with Judah? And it's because it's a foil for the story of Joseph. Judah's supposed to be the leader. Judah's with his family where he supposedly would hear a reiteration of the covenant of God. Joseph is far away, away from his family. The only one who believes where he is. And yet the truth of God's character is written on his heart. And so he remains consistent. I ran across a news story several months ago about a gym teacher at an elementary school, actually in the district that I grew up in, in the Richardson School District. This elementary school, elementary school gym teacher uh, went to take his yearbook photo one year, and uh, it was early on in his career. His name is Dale Irby. He went to take his yearbook photo, and when he got home, he realized that the clothes he wore for the photo were the same ones he had worn the previous year. So he was embarrassed and he told his wife, this is embarrassing. This yearbook's going to come out. Kids are going to laugh at me because they're going to see that I wore the same clothes two years in a row, which is a cardinal sin for children, right? And so uh, he's worried about it. And his wife said, I dare you to do it next year too. So he thought about it. He said, okay. So he did it a third year in a row. And then he said, uh, after the third year, I thought, hey, I've come this far. I might as well keep going. So he did it a fourth year and a fifth year, 40 years. <laughs> This man wore the same outfit for every yearbook photo. 40 years. Now that is consistency. I mean, you, you know that this is the guy that wears the brown sweater. By the 40th year, he said, I could still kind of fit in the shirt if I sucked in, right? Every year. He's consistent. You know what's going to happen. Joseph is remarkably consistent. Now, interestingly, not with his clothes. Joseph's clothes get stolen twice in this story, okay? But Joseph himself remains consistent. His character remains the same. Year after year after year, in prison, in slavery, Joseph remains faithful. Because he knows God is faithful to him. What does that look like practically in the life of Joseph? The first thing we see is that Joseph is willing to take care of other people. 
Let's look at chapter 40 for a moment. Then it came about after these things. The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there was no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So Joseph, here he is, he is in jail, even though he's kind of the head of the prisoners now, right? Because God has given him favor. He's still in jail and he gets put in charge of these two royal officials, the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer was probably a key advisor to the king. He would also hand him his wine at each meal and he would taste it first to make sure it wasn't poisoned so the king didn't get poisoned. He had a variety of important functions. The baker was what he sounds like. He's a baker. He makes bread for the king and Egypt was known for its bread. Both of these guys are in jail. Joseph is in charge of them and he walks in one day and what I love about this is he walks in and he notices their faces are sad. Now that right there should stand out to you. Joseph has his own problems, right? If anybody had a right to walk in and notice the sad faces and go, all right, sad faces, but I kind of got my own things going on, it would be Joseph, right? But he notices their faces are sad and then he asks them about it. Why are you so sad? And these guys say, well, we've had dreams and there's nobody here who can interpret. You have to realize in the ancient world, they viewed dreams and dreams often were visions from God. They saw them as messages from their gods even. And so there were dream interpreters who worked for the king. And uh, these dream interpreters had a full-time job just going around telling people what their dreams meant. Well, in prison, these guys had no access to the dream interpreters. So they've had these dreams and nobody can tell them what the dreams mean. And so they are sad about the dreams. And Joseph notices. And he cares for them because they've been put under his charge. What allows Joseph to do that? Because Joseph knows all of his needs are met by the God who is with him, who has not left, whose promises remain. Joseph gives to them out of the excess of what God has given to him. I know some of you filled out probably a March Madness bracket and, uh, you know, it may be that you're still doing great. It may be your bracket is totally decimated. But uh, a lot of publicity surrounded this year the fact that uh, this billionaire Warren Buffett sponsored a $1 billion contest, right? If you had a perfect bracket, then he would give a billion dollars to anybody who had that perfect bracket. Now, nobody ever has. And again, this year, nobody did. But I thought about that and I thought, what if somebody won that bracket challenge? Uh, Would he be devastated about giving away a billion dollars? Well, many people would, but not if you have $62 billion, right? There's still plenty left. He gives out of his excess. That's what Joseph is able to do. About a week ago, I sat down in our living room and I started to eat 
a snack. I was eating some chips and salsa. And as I started to eat, my six-year-old daughter came in and said, Daddy, can I have some of that? And I said, sure, you can, but it's very, very, very spicy and you probably will hate it. And uh, that's kind of been my standard line, really, for many years. Uh, It keeps them from eating from my snacks. And uh, up until this point, they've accepted it. And I do buy the salsa hot so that if they do taste it, uh, they might not like it. But this time she said, no, I want to taste it. So she grabbed a chip and she dipped it in there and she ate it. And I thought, okay, here comes the moment where the tears flow. And I say, this is a lesson for you, right? Remember this. And uh, so she ate it. And then she, she dipped the chips in again and she ate some more. And she said, nothing's too spicy for me. <laughs> and, and at that moment I thought, I'm really, I'm really proud of her that she can eat this. And I had this sort of paternal pride. And at the same time, I thought, she's eating my snack, right? And so both of these things are going on in my mind and I'm torn. But here's what I eventually thought. I thought, you know, sooner or later... She's going to go to to bed and I have a whole jar of it in the fridge that she can't access, right? So eat the bowl. I'll come pour another, right? And I can give out of my excess. That's what Joseph does. God has so filled his heart with love, with fidelity that Joseph can give to others and look around now and say, who else is in need? This cupbearer and baker, these guys were genuinely criminals. They had done something wrong to displease Pharaoh. And yet Joseph looks around and says, what do they need? And how can I here reflect the love of the God who's been faithful to me and my family for generations? And so Joseph doesn't give up, even in prison, because he knows God doesn't give up on him. One of the fascinating things that we see in the early church in the first century is how they were able to accept with joy even when their property was taken away, even when they were persecuted, even when they lost things that they held dear. Hebrews chapter 10 says, you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do you get that? They joyfully accepted when their property was taken away because they said, you know what? I have a bank of treasure that God holds in reserve for me that can't be taken away. Joseph knew God had promised him a future that could not be taken away. And so he's able to love others and care for others even in the midst of his pain. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of visiting somebody who is sick or going to the hospital to visit somebody who is sick or dying and you go there to serve them and then you drive away and you think, all we did was talk about me because that's what they asked me about. I remember years ago driving a man to the hospital who was dying from cancer and I had that thought as I drove home. The whole way, I couldn't ask him much about his life because he peppered me with questions about me, how he could pray for me and my family and my life. How does someone do that? In that case, it was because he was ministering to me out of the excess of what God had given him. Out of the recognition that even death cannot separate us from the love of God so he can give love to those around him and be a reflection of the love of God. That's what Joseph does. 
He engages now in work that is meaningful, that removes him from self-pity and focuses him on the love of God. So he loves these men, cares for them, and then he serves God. The remainder of chapter 40 details uh, Joseph's interpretation of these two men's dreams. So the cupbearer says, yeah, I had this dream that there are these three branches and I grab these grapes and I squeeze the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and I hand him the cup. Joseph goes, great news, great news. Uh, what this means is within three days, Pharaoh's going to take you out of prison and he's going to give you your job back. He's going to lift up your head and put you in your old position. The baker says, man, I like this guy's dream interpretation. So he walks forward and he says, I also had a dream. And uh, there were uh, baskets on my head and bread in the baskets and birds were coming and eating the bread of Pharaoh out of the basket on my head. And Joseph goes, what that means is Pharaoh within three days will chop off your head and hang you from a tree and the birds will eat you. And I always envision the baker at this point going, bummer, right? Like this is not what I expected to happen. The cupbearer got a good interpretation. I got a terrible one. And what's interesting about it is, though, that Joseph uses his gifts. He serves God with the gifts God has given him, and he does it truthfully and faithfully. And I have to think that both of those men are impacted by what Joseph said. I don't know this for sure, but perhaps the knowledge in the mind of that baker that I have three days left led him to an encounter with the living God through Joseph. And we know that the cupbearer eventually remembered Joseph. And brought Joseph to a place of authority and prominence in this pagan land of Egypt where the God of Israel could be proclaimed. And so Joseph, because he knows God hasn't given up on him, utilizes the abilities God has given him. And he says, look, dream interpretation doesn't come from your magicians. It comes from God. It would have been very easy for Joseph to say, you know what, my life has been pretty dark pretty painful. My family's a mess. I'm just going to go lie in myself for a while. Stop bugging me with your weird dreams, right? But he says, no, I'm going to serve my God even now. It's another pattern, by the way, that is evident with the early Christians. You see Paul going to prison over and over again for his proclamation of Jesus Christ. And, and while he's in prison, it seems that what Paul does he says wow now I have finally I have some time I'm going to write a couple of letters that become the majority of our New Testament because Paul and Joseph as well believe there is no moment where God has placed you where you cannot be his vessel of mercy and grace there's nowhere that you are there's nothing you're experiencing where God has forgotten you or said you're no longer able to serve see it with Peter, you see it with all of the early apostles as well. That even in prison, even in persecution, even in the face of death, they say, I'm going to proclaim and glorify the God who made us because I know that he loves me. Because I know that his love has not left and his promises are true. It's said that Polycarp, one of the early Uh, elders of the church, really in the first century, just after the time of the apostles. Polycarp was a elder in the church and he was eventually martyred. And it's said that as he was about to die, he continued to proclaim Jesus. And some men said, how can you continue to hold on to this faith, even in the face of 
this death. And, and the tradition goes that he said something to the effect of, for 85 years, I've served him. And he's never abandoned me. How now can I abandon him in this final hour? And went to his death. And he did that not because he was great, but because he saw the greatness of the love of God that was with him even in the darkest moment. That's how Joseph continues to persevere. He doesn't give up because he knows that God has not given up on him. The righteous do not give up on God because they know God hasn't given up on them. That knowledge of the character of God in Jesus Christ is what allows people to persevere. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the message of the scripture and the message of this sermon for you is that God loves you so much that he gave Jesus his only son who died in our place, died for our sin, and then he rose again. And all who trust in him can have eternal life and know that God will never leave and they will never be away from God's presence forever and ever and ever. For those of us who know him, the challenge then is to allow that reality to sink deeply into our hearts and our minds, to trust his promises. You know, Joseph is mentioned once in the New Testament. Uh, This Joseph is mentioned once in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11, in the great hall of faith, and it's a real short mention. It essentially says, by faith, when Joseph was about to die, he made mention of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, and he gave instructions concerning his bones. And you read that and you think, oh, that's kind of a strange thing to say. I've never really thought much about my bones, right? What's going to happen to my bones? Uh, Here's what Joseph says, though, and you see this in Genesis 50, is he's about to die in Egypt. He says to his brothers, one day God will lead you out, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He actually says it that specifically, will lead you into the land he's promised. And I want you to take my bones and bury them there. In Exodus 13, as Moses and the Israelites departed from Egypt, guess what Moses took with him in a box? The bones of Joseph. And they buried them in in the promised land when they finally got there. Why did Joseph want to be buried there? As he said, God made a promise that will not be broken. And I'm going to get to that land, even if it's in a box. That's what keeps Joseph persevering. A couple of thoughts as we close then. I'm aware that many, if not most in this room, are struggling with some sort of challenge, temptation, problem, trial. And like I said, it will still be with you when you leave. But in those moments... The life of Joseph exhorts us to a couple of things. One, recite the character of God. Go back to Psalm 139 again. There's nowhere you are. There is nowhere you will be this week. There is nothing that will happen where God is not present and does not see and does not care and actually has not dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You and I have a promise that one day suffering, sin, death, pain, all will be wiped away. And the God who has promised that is with us now. So even if we go there in a box, we'll be with God forever. 
because of what he's promised, and so will Joseph. You know why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, that's a promise. The bones of Joseph aren't going to stay in the little box, are they? And neither will yours and mine. So we recite the character of God whose promises are always true and whose presence is always here. And then we reflect his love to those around us who desperately need to know of this kind of a God who loves unwaveringly with a faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love to all those who know him so that those around us can come to know this God. We care for them. We serve God. We use our gifts, even in the midst of the pain, to proclaim the glory of God who gave us Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. What a powerful testimony of the life of Joseph, who because he knew you were there, because he trusted your promises, persevered. And I pray we would do the same. Uh, We struggle. Father, I, I know all of us struggle at those times when you seem distant to us or not nearby. Remind us that you are. I pray help us take the long view of our lives as well. That all of our circumstances, all of our challenges will not likely be solved today. But they met their resolution at the cross in Jesus Christ. And one day we will see the fulfillment of all of your promises. So while we live in between, let us be faithful, walk with you, and share the love of your son with all that we know. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.